And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. As most of you know, the focus of our work is to provide information and tools that will help you be a better investor. Most of the work is aimed at the do-it-yourself investor, uh, helping them learn basically seven areas of, uh, of the investing process. That, that, that would include uh, how to determine what equity asset classes you have in your portfolio and how to combine them uh, to, to create the portfolio, how much fixed income to have in your portfolio to try to reduce the, the volatility. And then we look at the returns and the risk during the accumulation period. We, we do the same thing during the distribution period. And of course, to, to put it all together, we actually recommend ETFs and mutual funds uh, to r- replicate the asset classes that we are recommending. And finally, and this will be a big part of our work in, in uh, 2023, to know when it is time to make these changes from all equity to 10% fixed income and 20 and on. Well, today the focus is on the selection of equity asset classes, and we're spotlighting small cap value. Now, I have talked endlessly about small cap value over the years, but in this case, I want to explain why I believe every investor should have some small cap value in the portfolio. And I'll make that case with, uh, with many of the tables that we've developed over the years. When I planned this podcast, I wanted to talk about 10 really important things about small cap value to, to, to give those who are in doubt the, the confidence of, of putting in even some small amount into your portfolio. As it turned out, and I put together my list, I think I'll give you more than 10, but you're going to get at least 10 good ones. And, uh, and, and, I, and I hope this I hope this, for those of you who are on the fence about small cap value, uh, it will help you move to action. My first point I want to make focuses on table B14A. Now there, there's a link to that for those who want to actually look at the table. But the important thing in the table to me and, and to, for those who don't know what that table is meant to reflect, it looks at a combination or combinations of the S&P 500 and small cap value. So on the left-hand side of the table, there's a column that shows the annual returns from 1970 until 2021 for the S&P 500 only. And on the far right-hand side of this series of columns, there's one that says U.S. Small Cap Value, SCV. That column represents the year-by-year results of that asset class uh, as, as, uh, uh, from the work of dimensional funds. Now, what is important on this page is not only that you could see the differences between those two major asset classes. And as you know, we have tables that track these two asset classes all the way back to 1928. This goes back to 1970. But what happens if you add, if you have a portfolio built up of 90% S&P 500 and 10% small cap value, and then 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and on up so that in every case, you can see over this 52-year period, what would the impact of building a portfolio just using these two asset classes, and what impact would it have on your financial future? So I want to start really going easy on you. 
I want to talk to the people who, let's say that you happen to believe, to believe that all you really need to own is the S&P 500 or the total market index. And I've talked about this before. They produce virtually the same return over the long term, within one-tenth of one percent, going all the way back to 1928. So it is the primary investment for most investors. If you're in a target date fund, you have in the equity portion mostly the S&P 500 or the U.S. total market index, and likely you'll have some similar position in the international uh, total market. But in both cases, they are exposure to large cap growth mostly. Some value, but mostly growth because the biggest and and most uh, successful companies are going to be the, have the biggest impact on the return of that particular index. So here is what I know, and here is what I think is so important to you, that the compound rate of return from 1970 to 2021 for the S&P 500 on its own was 11%. And if you added 10%, so it was 10% small cap value, 90% S&P 500. The return went up four-tenths of 1%. And if you added another 10%, it went up another four-tenths of 1%, so that the individual who had 20% small cap value and 80% S&P 500 would have generated an 11.8% compound rate of return compared to the 11% for the S&P 500. Now, to a lot of investors, that would not seem like a world of difference. But I think most of you, if you followed our work, know that that's really a big deal. But what I want to know is what am I exposing myself to in terms of additional risk to make that additional eight-tenths of one percent? And I'm going to put that, translate that in terms of, of how much money you might make, how much more as, as a kind of an average investor in just a minute. But right now, I want to focus on the risk of losing money. Because in this table B14A, like all of our fine-tuning tables, we want to look at the, the, the risk, the additional loss that we expose ourselves when we take more risk. So I can look at this table and see that the worst 12 months for the S&P 500 on its own was a loss of 43.3%. If I had 20% small cap and 80% S&P 500, that worst 12-month period was 44.5%. So that is that is about you know, a little over 1% bigger loss on your portfolio. Well, I'm not going to say that's nothing, but I don't even think most people would realize there had been that small difference between the two holdings on the way down. And then there's another way to measure kind of the the worst of something, and the worst of something that while people don't normally measure this, they feel it, and that is what was the biggest loss from the peak to the bottom uh, during a huge decline, and this is a huge decline, before it turned around and it crawled back up to get up to the peak again. That's called a drawdown. And in the case of the S&P 500, that drawdown was 51%. And it didn't matter whether it took a week or a year or two years, it was how far down you went. Now listen, this is important, I think. By adding the 20% small cap value, 
the not only was the worst 12 months uh, only about 1.2% higher, 44.5 from 43.3, but in the worst drawdown, it was 52.4%. So it was up one point, or I should say down, 1.4% more having added that 20% position in the S&P 500. That is almost like saying there, there, there is no difference. And by the way, if you looked at the standard deviation, that too is on the table. If you looked at the standard deviation, you would see that for the S&P 500 itself, it was 16.9 for the combination 17. So what, what I'm saying is that the risk is, is virtually the same for all practical purposes. Now, they may come at slightly different times, and that, for some reason, may make it uh, uncomfortable. Uh, as a matter of fact, 19, I mean, 20, uh, 2008, uh, 2008 uh, the uh, S&P 500 uh, was down 37%, and the all uh, small cap value was down 36.8. So th- they were virtually the same. At, w- in 2008, the 20% small cap value and the S&P 500 were down one-tenth of 1% less than the S&P 500. All I'm trying to say is, is that if we're looking to get a better return at the same risk or even lower risk, and I'll make that case in a minute, then it looks to me like this is a way to do it. And it truly is just putting a toe in the water. But there is a payoff for that toe. And I know that not all of you are 21 years old and just getting started, but to, to make the case as best I can, I, I, I do want to look at what would have happened, let's say, over a 40-year period if you made 11% versus 11.8, and you put away $6,000 a year. But, and you did that, and of course, that's not the way investing is going to work. You're, you're not going to just put 6000 a year, and, and you're also not going to get 11% every year or 11.8%. It's going to be a higher, higher returns and lower returns. But this is the overall, just following the math, what is the math of that extra one, uh, eight-tenths of 1%? And it turns out that for that 1.8% additional return, in the one case, without the additional uh, eight-tenths of 1%, the value at the end of 40 years was $3,875,000. If you made an extra eight-tenths of 1%, it would have been $4,868,000, about a million dollars more. So if you worked hard for 40 years and you saved for 40 years and you got 11.8 instead of 11, it meant that you left your heirs the higher number, the 4.86 million, compared to the 3.88 million. That would be the payoff for taking all that additional risk. Well, it looks to me like, in essence, there wasn't any additional risk. Now, you're likely to live beyond that. You're likely to live for, for 20, 30, maybe even 40 years after retirement, so that this advantage, it isn't just how much more you had at the, at, at the day you retired, but it's what does the income represent. For example, if you took out 5% of that $3.87 million, that would be about not quite 194000 If you took it out of the $4 million, almost $9 million, 
or $900,000, it would have been about $50,000 more, about $243,000 plus. That's a big deal, particularly if the risk was virtually the same. And, 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 and so from my viewpoint, I do want to twist your arm hard, particularly for those of you who even being in equities is a big step. Or, for example, you want to, to be in a target date fund, which is virtually all large cap, basically driven by large cap growth, and you want to put a 10 or 20% small cap value in there along with the target date fund, this is the kind of extra return that you are likely to get. And this is the additional risk you're likely to take. And the other thing that is a reality of this whole process, I can talk to you about a lifetime of investing. I can tell you that you're going to suffer a 50% decline. I have no idea when that 50% decline is going to come. It, it, it could be in the first year of, of your investing experience. It could come in the 40th year or in the 30th. Well, as a matter of fact, if I looked at the period from 1970 through 2010, there were three of those 50% declines. And they could happen, as I say, early when you have very little money in your portfolio. They could happen late when you have a lot of money in your portfolio. So I don't I don't want to make light of the loss, or the risk you're taking with this portfolio, but I'm saying you're probably going to experience the same kind of pain, whether you're all in the S&P 500 or you're 10 or 20% in small cap value. And here's another bonus, another reason this could be so important, and that is that it may be that your goal as an investor, and I'm going to use a number that I that I talked about just a minute ago, but let's just say you're what they call the fire number. I've got enough to retire is $3,875,000. That was the implication of putting away $6,000 a year for 40 years and making 11%. But... If that was your focus, not to retire in 40 years, but when you had $3,875,000, if you did it with 11.8%, it would take you 38 years instead of 40. So the real payoff was not that you ended up with more money because all you wanted, however you got there, was $3,875,000 to get there with the S&P 500 or the total market index would have taken you 40 years. To do it with the 80-20 would have taken you 38. Uh, and I'll tell you, that would be a big deal. You don't know that now when you're, if you're just getting started. Those things, those things just don't calculate in how you feel. But I can tell you, if because you took the step to take a little more risk, it got you there sooner, I think that two years extra retirement, if you don't like what you're doing, that's a really big deal. And I'm going to move on to another table in a minute. But before I leave this B14A, which I think is is truly uh, from just a pure equity viewpoint of, a, of something to learn from is one of the most powerful things uh, that, that we've ever put together. Uh, and, and, and I want to focus for a second. I want to move over a few more columns. We talked about the 20% small cap value and 80% uh, in the S&P 500. But I, I want to go on over to 50-50 where half is in the S&P 500 and half is in small cap value. Now, that's as if you listen to the podcast I did about uh, the investment that we're making uh, for our new granddaughter, 
uh, her investment for the long term will be half and half uh, small cap value in the S&P 500. Now, remember we moved from 11 to 11.8 in the return, uh, going to 20%. If we go to 50%, at least over this 52 years, you go from 11 to 12.7. So it's more than twice the uh, additional return uh, of the uh, previous uh, difference between 11 and 11.8. Now, what you would then have as risk, it's more, it is more. I can't say it's exactly the same. But the worst 12 months, instead of 43.3%, it was 46.3%. So you suffered a 12-month period that uh, your portfolio went down 3% more. And as far as the worst drawdown, the worst drawdown instead of 51% was 55.8. So basically, you were down about 5% more. And I'm not making light of an additional 5% loss. But the additional money that you make to the upside, of course, is huge. So now I want to take a look at table C1. And in a minute, we're going to compare it to table C9. Now, uh, you're not going to have to have the table in your hands because I'm only going to refer to a couple numbers. But I will tell you, these tables, I think, are golden for the early investor. Because in table C1, what I have the ability here to do is to look at the implications of putting away $1,000 a year. By the way, Daryl Balls, who put these tables together for us, uh, he, he invested at $83.33 a month for that first year, just like you're putting money into a 401k. But the next year, he raised the amount of money that was invested by 3%. And every year along the way, he raised it by 3%. And which, of course, is what we're hoping that you will be, uh, be doing to increase that, that commitment each year uh, during the periods of accumulation. And by the way, if you do that, this happens to be over a 52-year period, you will have invested $121,696 over the 52 years. So not a lot of money. I mean, it, it was a little bit at a time. But here's what I want you to see that I think is so important. If we look at the column that says, 100% stock, and in this case, as the title says, S&P 500 equity portfolio, the only fund you got in the portfolio is the S&P 500. And the value of the portfolio at the end of 40 years, that's what we're talking about, investing for 40 years, and this is a great 40 years to look at because you are going to stumble and you're going to stumble big time during this 40 years. You're going to stumble during the 50% decline during the 70s. You're going to stumble in the 2000 through 2002 50% decline. You're going to stumble uh, in for one day you went down 22% October 19th 1987 and then you stumbled again in the 2008 bear market during a period that you would have lost 50%. So three times you lost 50% and one time you lost 22% in a single day. A lot of hurdles to clear. But at that end of that time with the S&P 500, you would have $662,853 for which you had uh, in, in, in invested uh, probably just around 100 I'm sorry, maybe more like 
eighty-five to ninety thousand dollars. I don't have the exact number here. But what if? What if instead you use the 50-50 strategy, half in S&P, half in small cap value? The difference in return, remember, was uh, 12.7 instead of the 11 uh, over the 52 years. But the difference over this particular 40-year period Instead of $663,000, it would be $1,364,000. Basically doubling what you had at the end of this 40-year period. Now, how important would that be? If you knew the outcome, you would not have any problem. I mean, this is, this is the, the real hurdle with making decisions about investing. Because I look at this table and I know exactly, well, approximately what happened. Now, there was not even an S&P 500 index for this whole period. So the academics have dug out the replica, the hypothetical. Same thing with small cap value. This is just the work of the academics looking at the returns of all of the individual companies that made up these different indexes. So, I'm thinking, if I have to take a 3% additional loss along the way one time, I'm not afraid of that. In fact, I would consider uh, an an extra $600,000-$700,000 to retire on uh, as, as certainly worthy of an additional three, four, five percent loss. So that to me, I'm looking for special information. I think that's very special. Now let's take you to another level of risk. Let's talk about the risk that we expose ourselves to when we are uh, in retirement during the period of distributions. And this is another area that our foundation spends a lot of time building information, tools, tables that you can use to play the what-ifs. Now, I have not even mentioned the, the lifetime investment calculator that we make available that you can go in and manipulate your own num- numbers, your own amounts of money, with these same returns, and you can even adjust them to be either lower or higher, if you wish. But the, but the bottom line is we have the ability with our distribution tables to be able to compare using in the equity part of our portfolio. We're not going to be all equities uh, with the S&P 500. We may be 60% in equities and 40% in fixed income. We could be 50-50, 40-60, but for the sake of this little piece here, let's think in terms of 60% equity and 40% fixed income. And we can look at the return of the S&P 500 as the equity part of the portfolio, and we can look at table, I'm looking at table D1, dot four, D1 period four. And again, this one uses for the equity exposure, the S&P 500. So I can take a period of time and I'm going to use from 1970 through the end of 99. Now that's 30 years instead of 40. I could have gone out 40 but I thought, well, maybe that is not, uh, maybe that's too long for retirement. That looking at the difference between this strategy and the 50 50 small cap value and SP 500 uh, equity position uh, would be more meaningful. So here's what I know about that period looking at this particular table with a $40,000 starting distribution based on their starting value of the portfolio of a million in 1970. And by the way, if that's 
too low a number, you can multiply it times 10 if you want to do it with 10 million, or you can divide it by 10 if you want to do it with 100,000. But here is the bottom line. Over that 30-year period, taking out $40,000 a year to start and adjusting future year's distributions by inflation, you would have ended up with a portfolio worth about $5.9 million at the end of 30 years with a period of time that inflation was very high. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a period uh, uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, that inflation never got below 8%. So that would have been the impact of using the S&P 500. Now, what if what if we use the portfolio that is, instead of the S&P 500, we make it more special if you're talking about greater returns? Uh, how would you have done? Well, over that same period, you would have ended up, took out the same amount of money, by the way, this was a fixed distribution plus inflation, you would have ended up with $12.7 million by using the 50-50. And remember, there was very little difference in the, uh, uh, in the risk of the 50-50. In fact, I'm going to take you to another table in a few minutes that makes the case that there was actually less risk using the 50-50 small cap value S&P 500 versus the S&P. But I want to talk about a different kind of risk. I want to talk about how low you went in terms of amount of money in the portfolio. Remember, you started with a million dollars. So I'm going to look at those two tables. The the uh, D1 period four and the D14 period four. Here's what I know. That at one point, you would have actually taken some money out of principal and you would have gotten down at the end of 1974. 73, 74 were bad years. Your portfolio value would have been $906,000 approximately. And remember I said it then eventually it, it does go up. In fact, it's positive again the next year and never goes below the million. But, but by the end of the 30 years, it pays the money out every year and leaves your heirs with about $5.9 million. Now, that low point, that $906,000, that is key because that is in essence the risk that, that you took. Now, if you used the combination of the small cap value and the S&P 500, here is a case where the account got down to $849,000. So it got down to a lower number. And, of course, you don't know how low low is going to be. And when you're going through a period of decline, you just know it's going to be a lot lower. There's at least that fear of it. Well, it didn't. Uh, in fact, by the end of that decade, uh, that, which, was a, which was a bad decade, the S&P 500 portfolio, 60-40, ended the decade with about $1.2 million the other portfolio that uses the combination of small cap value and S&P 500, about $1.54 million. So it was about 40% higher by the end of that first decade. But doesn't mean you didn't go through some, some um, little tossing and turning when the, when the market had gone down and you were living uh, off your principal. So... A few minutes ago, I made the comment that they, you could look at this use of the combination of small cap value and the S&P 500 as actually being lower risk. 
Now, it really depends on how we look at risk. I have been using the, uh, the losses, the, the, the drawdown, the worst 12 months. I want to take another look. I want to focus on losses in a different way. It is not a way that people generally look at them, but I think it's a fair way to look at them, and I'm referring to some numbers on table H1. This is one of my favorite tables. It is out of the Sound Investing Portfolios series of tables. We'll have a link to all of these tables. But what I like about this, what Daryl did with this table was he looked at all nine of our different portfolios. I've been talking about the S&P 500 versus the 50-50 with small cap value. But there's a, a number of other portfolios which include an all-value portfolio, a worldwide portfolio, a, a, a worldwide small cap value portfolio. They are all legitimate ways to combine these different asset classes, maybe for different parts of, of your uh, portfolio of accounts. You might have some taxable and some tax deferred. But here's what I found, that if you look at the S&P 500 in this table, H1, you can see the returns for every uh, a decade uh, starting in 1970. Now, the final decade that starts in 2010, he takes through 21, so just so we can bring it up to date. But I can see the S&P 500, and I see one thing that sticks out is that the period from 70 through 79, the compound rate of return was under 6%, and for the period from 2000 through 2009, it was a loss of 1% a year compounded. When I look at the two-fund strategy, I see that during that same 70 through 79, instead of a, a, a actually 5.8% compound rate of return, it was 10.1 with the small cap S&P 500 combo. And in that 2000 through 2009, where the S&P 500 lost 1%, the combination actually gained 4.2% a year. Not a home run, uh, but at least some gain uh, during the period. So that is, that is one way to look at risk, but that's not why I invited you to this table. Why I invited you to this table is to see that Daryl, underneath those decade returns, takes you to the good years, the years it made money. How did it do? What, what, what was the average gain when it was a gain, uh, a profitable year? And what was the average loss when it was a losing year? And what was the total sum of all of those gains and all of those losses? And for the S&P 500, the gains were a total of 787%. Okay? Losses, a total of a negative 141.1%. When we look at the combination of the small cap value and the S&P 500, the sum of the gains were 872%. That's better than 787. And the losses, instead of 141.1, were 130.1. So what I'm saying is these numbers, when looked this way, and this is not a normal way to look at it, it this, I, this is the first time I've ever seen anybody do it this way, but I thought Daryl had a, there was a good story there. Nobody ever goes back to, to add up how much they made in the good years versus how much they lost in the bad years. But I do think it is a legitimate way of looking at these two, let's call them portfolios. And there are lots of other statistics here 
that that really make the two fund strategy look better. But I want to take you to one more really cool table. Now, this was another one. I've never seen a, t- a table like this, but it really, I think, as, when you sit, when you, when you consider that the goal of this foundation is to give you information and tools that help you understand what you have better, I think this is a big deal. I think people who really dig with us into these numbers, and when you are a do-it-yourself investor, you know we're asking you to learn what a good advisor should know. And I will tell you, not many advisors know all this stuff because I, I have not seen it prepared like this. I think it's really helpful. So I'm going to look at a table that reflects the returns of the small cap value and the S&P 500 going back to 1928. And it's looked at to build the table one year at a time. And what the uh, table looked at was how did the S&P 500 do each year compared to four other portfolios. One was the U.S. four-fund strategy, 25% each large-cap blend, large-cap value, small-cap blend, and small-cap value. One was a two-fund small-cap value, S&P 500, exactly what we've been looking at. Uh, the next is a all-value, half in small-cap value U.S., half in large-cap value U.S., and finally, all small-cap value. Well, I'll tell you what I love about this table, because let's just talk about, for example, the S and the small-cap value compared to the other four. In 45... Of the 94 year, 94 years, up 48% of the time, it was the number one performer. And then it was rarely number two, three, or four, but it was 33% of the time, 31 times, it was the worst performer. Now, theoretically, It should be the best performer every year because the compound rate of return for this single asset class was 13.4% over that period. But even though it was the best overall for the long period, it was only in that top quintile 48% of the time. If you looked at the S&P 500, it is supposed to be at the bottom of the pile. It has the is expected to have the worst return, the lowest return. I shouldn't say the worst because it wasn't bad, but the lower return because it's the least risky. There's no magic there. That's the way it's supposed to work. But about 38% of the time, it came in in the top quintile. It was the big winner. So the, when you go look at this one year at a time, it doesn't look very neat and tidy. But it was at the bottom 51% of the time. The four-fund strategy was right in the middle 51% of the time. And the small-cap value at the top 48% of the time. And by the way, when you were in the two-fund strategy, you were never in the top. You were never in the bottom. There was always something uh, better or something worse. You were in the middle 35% of the time with the two-fund strategy. But the two-fund strategy, while not at the top or at the bottom, 
had a 12.2% compound rate of return versus the S&P 500 of 10.2%. So for all of those years, there was a 2% advantage for the two-fund strategy. It's just more evidence that that combination is really, a, it's a powerful combination And one of the reasons it becomes so powerful is because, on average, the return each year of the S&P 500 and the small cap value, the average difference is over 14%. So while it won't surprise us to see the S&P 500 up 10, that it also shouldn't surprise us to see the small cap value up 24. There's that 14%. And it reverses itself. Remember, there were many years that the small cap value was the worst and this S&P was the best. So you put these two things that are really good over the long term. One is better, but it's also more risky. But you put them together and you have a more reliable long term return closer to the middle than to the edges. And let me add just a couple more things that I think are really interesting. Uh, One of them more meaningful than the other, statistically, but both very interesting. Let me take the one that's uh, not as meaningful. During periods uh, of high inflation, The stock market can struggle, depends when in the process uh, you look, but but we can look at a period, for example, like 73 through 83, where inflation was over 8%, at some points much much higher than 8%. But the bottom line is it it was uh, one of the worst periods uh, for inflation ever in our country. And during that 73 through 83 period, the S&P 500 compounded at 6.7%. Small cap value over that same period compounded at 20.2%. And if you read what people say about value generally is that it does better during periods of higher inflation. But here's one that I find more interesting, because I want to talk about the emotional aspects of investing. Investing is really very, very simple. I mean, they have made it. They, the the people who have created products that make it simple, whether it's a target date fund or it's an index fund, and you're getting low expenses, you're getting broad diversification, you're getting high tax efficiency, you're getting uh, no load to get in and no load to get out. I mean, it's it, it, and just very, very, very low expenses compared to where it was when I came into the business in the mid-60s. But where we struggle is certainly during uh, a, a big market decline. And what feels good, particularly if you're a buy and holder, is when it turns around and it heads up. You have no idea. I have no idea how far up is. I don't know that it's not going to slide again. It's the way the, the, the mind will talk to you and try to convince you it's going to nothing. You're going to lose everything. Now, you know better than that intellectually, but emotionally, just like we can actually think we have a chance to win the lottery. Yeah, we do, but if it's 300 million to one, those are not really good odds. But I want to talk about what has happened in the past that, uh, that gives me hope in terms of recovering from a market decline. 73 and 74 was a really b- a major bear market. It was one of those periods during which the S&P 500 was down uh, over 50%. Uh, Now, following that, the three years, I'm looking at three years, because uh, 
This, this is trying to climb back up to break even again, to get ahead again. Well, the S&P 500 in the 75, 76, 77 years, those three years, that compounded at 16.4%. Well, it, it, it wasn't great, but that was certainly better than losing all the money that had happened the previous two. Small cap value, on the other hand, compounded at 47.5%. When we look at the 2000 through 2002 bear market, where, again, the S&P 500 lost over half of its value, uh, the recovery for the three years following was 14.4%. And during the recovery of that bear market, small cap value was up 30.4% a year. I mean, that was, that was a great recovery. But, but let me give you just one more number that is, is, is interesting. It doesn't always happen this way, but it did then. During that period that the S&P 500 performed so poorly, the small cap value asset class compounded at more than 12%. Now, I don't want to make that sound like a miracle because the rest of the story is that prior to that terrible three years for the S&P 500, the previous five years, it had compounded at over 28.5%. The small cap value compounded at uh, uh, about 10% less per year during that previous five-year period. And I want to be real careful uh, to remind uh, anybody who's going to use small cap value in their portfolio that there are long periods of underperformance, like I just mentioned. There was a five-year period that the S&P 500 compounded at more than 10% more per year than small cap value. And there's a wonderful uh, graph that Daryl has put together. It goes through 2019. The story is still the same, and that is that that when we look back to the 1920s and we look at the returns, relative returns, of the S&P 500 and small cap value, that while small cap value has outproduced the S&P 500 by 14 times over that 90-some year period, that uh, I mean, that's, that's the good news. The bad news is more than half of the time, the S&P 500 was doing better. And so it, it was relatively short spurts of high energy that catapulted the small cap value to the higher return. So it was a piece of cake for me to put or to suggest that uh, my daughter put the uh, investment for our new granddaughter into small cap value at least half of the portfolio for for the long term because she has time on her side. At age seventy nine, I I don't have that time, and it's it would not be unusual if for the rest of my life, small cap value is not a high performer. Doesn't mean it has to be a bad performer. Uh, the S and P five hundred, even though it had two terrible, relatively terrible decades from 1970 through uh, through now, uh, two bad decades, but overall it was still an 11% compound rate of return, which is an excellent long-term return. And one final item. Uh, this, When I say it's a big one, over a lifetime it's big bucks in the difference. But the question of rebalancing, in the case of my granddaughter's account, what I've asked my daughter to do is uh, make the investment half in small cap value and half in S&P 500 and just let it, let it go. There's no reason to, uh, uh, to rebalance. Now, uh, 
technically when she takes money out of the taxable account and moves it over to the Roth IRA, she will then again start 50-50 small cap value and uh, and the other part in uh, S&P 500. But, but it, it seems to add, historically, without rebalancing, about two-tenths to three-tenths a year. Well, that turns out to be a pretty big deal over a long period of time. But more important in my mind was that the less that they have to touch that portfolio, uh, the higher the, the return is likely to be. So these are all, from my viewpoint, when I say there are special reasons to own the small cap value, it is simply that history says that we will get a premium for that. The academics are not willing to tell us by how much. When I first learned about factor investing back in the early 1990s, uh, the position of the academics of Dr. Fama and Dr. French was that there was about a 2% premium for the small cap and about a 3% premium for value. So in theory, small cap value would make about 5% more per year. Now, when we go back and look at all the 40-year periods, yes, it is true that the average 40-year period with small cap value is about 16% compound rate of return versus 11 for the S&P 500. So there's your 5%. But looking at the last 52, it was more like a 3% total difference. And there are lots of reasons why that should be or could be so. Part of it is because nobody knew about the small cap premium as 60 or 50 years ago, and they, they do now. So that premium uh, has probably shrunk. Uh, but the same thing could be said about equities, period, the, the S&P 500. In 1926, people believed that uh, stocks were just a pure speculation and bonds were the right thing to do for the long term. Well, today we tell people that stocks are the right thing for the long term, that the there is an expected premium over fixed income. And it, maybe it'll be less in the future. I I can't say, you can't say, but I can say that when we look at the past, diversification works, low expenses work, low taxes work, anything that keeps your your mind and your hands off of the money is going to help it work better, and, uh, and our job is to do what we can to, to help you come to that conclusion. And this is one of the last podcasts I'll do of this year. And I can tell you, I am so excited about the information that we're, we're hoping to share with you next year. I hope our work does help you do better, gives you better peace of mind, gets you a better compound rate of return, gives you the evidence to convince your children this is not only a viable way for you to invest, but for them to invest as well. Thank you. Many of you donated uh, here towards the end of the year. We certainly appreciate that. I promise the money will be put to good use, and I promise none of it will go to me. Uh, I also uh, promise that if you continue to ask us questions, we'll do our best where we feel we're qualified to give you answers. I also, next year, as I mentioned before, we're going to focus on the glide path. And I also want to make sure that we have found the best resources we can for you uh, where we're not, it's not our strength. That's why we want to have these truth tellers uh, that we're uh, recommending to you. And we're not compensated from by any of them for uh, recommending you. This is because we think these are people whose information is trustworthy. They too do not know 
what the future brings. So uh, I can't I can't count on them for that. But in terms of having a better inside look at what they are specialists at, uh, I, I think they're worth following as well. Thank you for all that you do. Please, if there's any, the one big thing is pass that free book along, the PDF or the or the uh, audio book. Uh, we're talking millions. And uh, if one of these podcasts or one of our articles uh, is of interest to others in your family, uh, you think, I hope you pass it along. Have a have a great holiday season and uh, and and happy new year to you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations and more, visit paulmerriman.com.